again and welcome to this second installment here at Branches HB of this series we're calling Women and the Church. I'm Andrew Shane. I'm going to be leading us through this installment, just as I did the previous installment and the ones to come. We're looking at exactly that topic, women in the church, in a biblically grounded light, answering questions about our theology and practice by looking to God's word while seeking to encourage unity and maturity amidst our potentially differing points of view. To recap, in the previous episode, I spoke about the why and how of our approach to this discussion. If you didn't start there, I want to encourage you to go back now, because each week we're going to build upon the previous week's understanding. In that last installment, we also looked at women in the created order and what the Bible says about women and their place in the kingdom of God. Before concluding by looking at how Jesus challenged the presumptions and biases of his day by advocating for women and their value in a variety of contexts through the Gospels. That was a broader look at this topic, and we'll continue with that broader perspective as we begin to discuss the topic of authority and gender in this session how it's reflected in the created order of Genesis, but also how authority is to be understood and exercised in general among God's people. That will conclude our general observations and conclusions regarding women in the church, and then we'll have some time in this installment to look more specifically at the unique contributions of women as recorded in the Old and New Testaments, and how they fit into that broader picture that we've established from the first installment to the beginning of this one, before we'll get even more focused next week and discuss women and the spiritual gifts and the various contexts for the practice of those spiritual gifts. So you can see we're moving from general to specific over these four weeks, concluding in the final week by defining our structure and practice for our context in the branches community as a result of this extensive scriptural study. Let's dive into the content for today. So as I mentioned last week, we established that Jesus and his followers advocated for women as co-equally made in God's image and as equal recipients of God's spirit. They are full inheritors of kingdom citizenship, and they are co-equal participants in the complementary relationship and spiritual covenant of marriage. That's all clear enough, and that was established in our first installment. But I want to begin today by validating the fact that there remains a clear principle in the New Testament supporting the subordination of women to men in terms of authority, and the nature of that subordination as originating from the created order established in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. The premise is simple. Men were created first, and women were created from men, thereby establishing a sequence of authority with men spoken of as the head or the source of women. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22 says, The Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 concludes from this created order that a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be 
quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24 declares, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, let me clarify here that we aren't done looking at these passages I just read, their contexts and their implications. We don't just cherry pick verses and establish practice in theology based on a cursory reading of the passages. We have to work to grasp what is being communicated in context. And we will do some of that work in our next episode. But these quotations do serve to prove what I said at the outset. There is a consistent principle taught throughout the New Testament supporting the subordination of women to men in terms of authority. And the nature of that subordination originates from the created order established in the book of Genesis. That conclusion is contested by egalitarians, those who see no difference between men and women in role or function in the church. They will contest, and maybe even you listening right now will contest, that these teachings are a product of the times in which these principles were taught. And admittedly, they did cohere with tradition that was accepted at the time of the writing. But the Bible grounds these principles all the way back to Genesis, at creation, before the fall. I would suggest to egalitarians, and I respect many of my brothers and sisters in this view in the branches community and beyond, that an easing of all gender distinctions and roles, as seems to be the trend in the present world, easing all the distinctions between men and women and their different roles between genders, may unintentionally undermine timeless biological fact domestic design, and aspects of sexual identity and practice that are finding blind reinterpretation at a rapid pace in our world today. I'm going to suggest, and I hope you follow in this study to discover, I mean, maybe if you have some heartburn right now, maybe you don't, maybe you're right in line with me and everything that we're seeing, but if you have some heartburn, I, I want to encourage you, I hope you're going to follow in this study to discover that we need not embrace an over-realized equality, as it were, to establish the value and full participation of women in the modern church. I mean to say we don't need to deny all gender distinctions, whether they be differences in biology, domestic roles, and or a woman's relationship to positions of authority in the home or in the life of the church. We don't need to deny any difference in those areas in order to see women express their full participation and givenness in the church today. We'll get there. So please stick with me through these episodes. Now, let me clarify something very important as we examine the biblical role of men as the head or authority in their complementary relationship with women. The nature of that authority, I have to establish this, 
It's strongly tempered in a variety of ways by Jesus and the apostles to avoid its historical abuses, which have worked to undermine the value of women as fixed in the scriptures themselves. There's no question historical abuses of authority have often fostered sin on the part of men toward women. Our understanding of what the exercise of authority entails must be derived from the understanding that's given and promoted in and demonstrated in the example and person of Jesus, backed up by the Word of God itself. So for one, authority itself, often universally prized and sought and desirable to achieve in society, we've got to face the fact that its value is diminished and subordinated by Jesus beneath the attitude and posture of servitude that we're all called to, regardless of gender. Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve. Right? These are positions of authority. This is the twelve. This is the inner circle. And said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus himself, the prototype for righteousness for all men and women alike, was not one who assumed the authority that was rightly his, but he emptied himself in humility to serve. And we too are all called to do the same. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I cited this last week as we walked through our differences in this discussion. What does it say? Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In emptying himself of all the privilege that was rightfully his, Jesus provided a model for husbands and for leaders in the church as they seek to emulate his way in the practice of loving their wives in the marriage union through self-sacrifice. Consequently, the lengthy description given in Ephesians 5 of a husband's authoritative role, right, which could be used for all kinds of historical abuses that we're all aware of, but if you look at that lengthy description in Ephesians 5 of a husband's authoritative role, it's one that's shaped by love, care, concern, and service in the following of Christ's example. It doesn't paint a picture of assertive control or anything like it. Likewise, in that same passage, the woman's role is also framed in a complementarian way through the gospel. She is to serve her husband as she would serve the Lord. In the total picture that's presented, both parties are running their natural and traditional domestic roles through a gospel-oriented filter, through a filter of how the message of Jesus, how faith in Jesus changes the way they relate to these traditional and domestic roles. And both, husband and wife, end up pursuing essentially the same ideals in different ways. 
mutual self-giving submission and humility in love. Let's read it together. Don't take my word for it. Let's read Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Submit yourselves one to another. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, Paul writes, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It's clear from reading Ephesians chapter 5, the onus is not on any one party over the other to obey these ideals of self-giving, submissive love. But the standard is that both would pursue them in concert with each other and in response to their shared reverence for God as they reflect the gospel message as one, as one body. You know, what I've said so far already reframes our earthly understanding of power and authority. But consider furthermore with me that in heaven, many of the earthly distinctions and authority and the earthly roles will cease to be as we know them, as will traditional understandings of domestic life as we conceive of them in our world. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, Jesus declares, and this brings a lot of heartburn for people all over the map, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, there are various interpretations of what Jesus is saying here, but you can tell already, he's saying, look, the way things are in the world are not necessarily gonna be the way things are structured in heaven. You gotta know that. And consider Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 20 of the parable of the workers in the vineyard, where Jesus explains that many who are first in the world are going to end up last, and many who are last are going to end up first in the kingdom of God. Essentially, Jesus tells us there in Matthew 20 in a variety of ways, and in Matthew 22, that the structures and hierarchies and domestic designs of this world do not transfer one-to-one into his eternal kingdom. The Apostle Paul, he understood this, and continually he's keeping in view both the gospel-influenced reality of today's domestic structure and earthly structures and leadership structures alongside the eternal kingdom view as he pastorally guides the church. In one breath, and this is really interesting here in 1 Corinthians, in one breath, he affirms the practical complementarian distinctions of marriage natural to this world that we too at Branches have already stated we affirm. 1 Corinthians 11.3, it's the passage we read earlier. I want you to realize 
that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. But then if you keep reading, and, and read this whole passage in its own right, 1 Corinthians 11, if you keep reading, in the next breath, he puts the co-equal nature of all relationships in view. Women found their source at creation in men, but men are born of women, Paul argues, and all things ultimately come from the same source, God, who is over all. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 to 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of women. But everything comes from God. So yes, we operate in the world this way with these structures, but Paul's saying, do you get the bigger picture? There's a quality, and all men and women alike, ultimately, this is the key in all of our lives, men and women alike are both going to be submitting ultimately to God. Elsewhere, Paul throws cold water on the traditional and assumed unequivocal, unrestrained, and unilateral authority of husbands over their wives. You know, that would be the traditional way that you would see things. That's where a lot of the abuses come from. This assumed, unequivocal, unrestrained, blank check, unilateral authority that husbands have over their wives. He throws cold water on that and commands their own practice of submission to their wives' authority over their body as men. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, now, now you don't often hear this part of it, right? The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. To emphasize the seriousness of authority being correctly tempered and exercised in the marriage union by men, Peter suggests an abuse of authority that doesn't take into account the various things that I'm suggesting right now from the scripture. These aren't my opinions, guys. I'm citing the Bible, okay? If we wanna be word-based, we gotta to go to what the Bible says. So, so if we wanna just you know take these verses and ignore these verses in establishing our ideals for complementarian marriage, well, well then you, know, you gotta to listen to this warning by Peter. Peter suggests an abuse of authority that negates both the co-equal status of a man's wife in the kingdom of God and his violation of the loving kindness demanded in his role as a husband who loves his wife as Christ has loved the church. That's going to be the cause of a hindered relationship between him and God. Hindered prayers, Peter says, before God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs alongside you, heirs with you, equal heirs of the gracious gift of life. Treat them that way, acknowledge that, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Hinder your relationship with God. Paul too states that a mismanagement of the household, which, I mean, we can define, we know what Paul thinks the household is supposed to be run like, how a husband is supposed to treat his wife in Paul's imagination. He states that a mismanagement of the household, which is this failure to fulfill the love of Christ toward one's wife, 
that is grounds to disqualify a man from leadership and authority in his church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. An elder must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. And this is, this is the problem here. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, if the husbands can't do what Christ has commanded them to do toward their wives, how can he take care of God's church? Keep in mind, too, that in all places, when we talk about the authority that men exercise, authority in these leadership structures and in domestic design, it's all placed in the setting of submission to the unequivocal, unilateral, and unrestrained supremacy and authority of Jesus over both men and women and all the church. For recall with me, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The principles underlying a proper understanding of authority, as Jesus defines it, impact not only how authority is to be understood and exercised by men in the home, but also in how men exercise authority in the household of God in the oversight of the church. You know, we've established that it was the practice of the early church to see men as the head of the household. And so also men were exclusively selected as the heads of the household of faith, functioning in the local church as elders and overseers. You can see the support for this in Titus chapter one, verse seven. Such was the typical leadership structure of the early churches. After itinerant evangelists or apostles such as Paul would move from city to city preaching the gospel, they'd see that a local community, a group of people would receive the message of Jesus. And then the pattern was before they would move on to evangelize another city or to go and establish a church in another city, they would appoint elders and overseers, men from among the community to be charged with the ongoing responsibilities of pastoral oversight and to oversee doctrine. You can see this pattern established in Titus chapter one, verse five, and all throughout the testimonies of the book of Acts. As I said, these elders or overseers, two terms which appear to be interchangeable in the New Testament, they were exclusively men per 1 Timothy chapter three, verse two, and Titus chapter one, verse six. Based on the qualifications outlined in the scriptures, it was clear these men were required to define the authority bestowed on them, not in terms of the flesh or of the world standards and how we would naturally think of power or authority and the structures in the corporate world, whatever it may be, but they were supposed to look at their authority through the lens of Christ's love and his example of service and self-sacrifice and an ultimate submission to the ultimate headship of Jesus overall. You can see this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, a description of how they're supposed to lead in Titus chapter 1 that I've cited a few times here. But let's read 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 to 4 to understand the nature of their exercise authority. Peter writes, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds. Be pastors of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, 
not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to rule, no, eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples, examples of Christ, right, to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, this is the one we're all in submission to, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Just as in the home, the exercise of authority in the church was to be understood through the lens of Christ's humility and service, and in submission, right, to his supreme authority over all. So in conclusion, having established a clear thread through the scriptures, the leadership at branches, the, the board of elders, affirms both the place of men as the head of their households in the complementarian relationship of marriage and affirms their role as the heads of the household of faith. And that's expressed in our current structure, our exclusively all-male elder board, which leads the church in submission to Christ. Now, this is not to negate any of the other realities established conclusively in the scriptures regarding the value and place of women in the church. Rather, if you think about it, the elders are charged with the responsibility of ensuring the value and place of women, that it's visibly established in the life of the church. To do otherwise would be to hinder us spiritually and in the ministry. Additionally, Branches reiterates the nature and exercise of the authority men employ in their roles. It has to be understood in terms established in the scriptures and as defined by Jesus and his ultimate authority overall. Okay, so already in our study in these first two installments, we've explored the broader view of women in the scriptures and now define that the authority for the household and the household of faith is reserved for men even as we seek to temper our understanding of what the exercise of that authority even means, we got to see it through the gospel lens, through Christ's example. But the question is, where do women fit into this picture? Did the exclusivity concerning the role of elder and overseer as reserved for men, did that keep women from participating in active ministry and other forms of leadership in the first century church? Does the established leadership structure for branches necessitate the limiting of the role of women in active ministry today? And how did marital subordination of women to men in terms of authority define the role of women at home as seen in the Bible itself? Well, let's start there. When it comes to the domestic life of men and women in the institution of marriage, as well as women's contributions in the church overall, in general, if you think about it, cultural norms can become so Fixed, so stuck in the minds and imaginations of individuals that they begin to codify them back and read them back into the biblical text, into the Bible. What I'm trying to say is we all bring our biases and experiences back to the Bible. Well, this is the way I see it. This is the way I think, you know, it functioned the best in our history, in our country. Here's the way I think they did it in the first century that we should do it today. And when we get these biases and assumptions and we take it for granted, this is what it's going to look like. And we read that back into the Bible and back into the biblical text. That was one of the chief errors I want to point out of the religious leaders and their constant nagging at Jesus. They're just nipping at Jesus constantly. Jesus had failed to fulfill the assumptions the spiritual leaders had regarding what was truly biblical in practice 
because they place the authority of their traditions, of their biases, of their understandings on the level of God's authority. See that, guys. In Luke chapter 2, you can see a, a series of several episodes where they're just nipping at Jesus. And it, and it has nothing to do with the actual scriptural authority. It has to do with them taking their tradition and their bias and their experience and the way they've always done it and placing it on the same level as the authority of the scriptures. You know, much of the advocacy of Jesus in his teaching an example regarding the role and place of women in society that I talked about in the first installment, it was a byproduct of his turning back to what the Bible actually reveals. It wasn't like he was saying things that were just outright revolutionary. It was like, guys, you place this tradition. We need to get rid of your assumptions and biases and tradition. We need to go back to what God has always said, and I'm going to re-enliven that. And so he says all these revolutionary things, but they're not revolutionary. They're just going back to the source, to the scriptures. Likewise, when one engages in even a cursory, like if we just look at the, sur the surface, a superficial reading of some key texts from the Old and New Testaments, sure, there are some things to suggest that the cultural form cynicism regarding women, that it was a real thing at the time in which the Bible was written. There's cynicism regarding even men and their role in the world. We're going to see that in a moment. But there are many more passages that reflect the divinely affirmed breadth of women's capacity for influence and impact in the world and at home. So, for example, while King Solomon reflects the traditional negative sentiment regarding women in the ancient world in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 28, which states, While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Oof, you know, that that's not a good look for men. You know, we can just say that, look, I was looking over the world. I was looking for a positive example in the world. And man, I could only find one guy among a thousand. But here's a literary device he uses to kind of exaggerate on that. And I couldn't even find a single woman. Yeah, it's not a popular teaching. It's not a popular verse. But, it, you know, it's, it's cynical. It's cynical about the behaviors of women. It's cynical about the behaviors of men. Where's King Solomon's mind at? Maybe he's talking about himself. He's the one guy he approves of in the entire world. We don't know. But that negative sentiment contrasts with his much more extensive reflections attributed to him in Proverbs 31, which describe a woman who is said not to respect, but is respected by her husband in verse 11. She works with her hands in verse 13. She is said to be financially savvy in verse 18. She's an entrepreneur of sorts. We see that in verses 16 and 17. She's given to ministry toward the vulnerable in verse 20. She's self-motivated in verse 15. Hardworking in verse 22. And independently successful in verse 31. Her husband's success seems to reflect positively back on her, not just her success upon her husband in verse 23. She's called strong and dignified, strong and dignified in verse 25. She's filled with wisdom in her speech and in speaking godly instruction, verse 26. She's teaching, and ultimately she is to be praised and honored by all, including her husband, and given credit for the work that she does. Again, that's verse 31. The Proverbs 31 woman is a qualitative description of the ideal woman from the Old Testament, 
which was often neglected through Jewish and Christian history. And that example stands against cliches and traditional domestic definitions from our own American history of what the ideal woman is supposed to look like and how she's supposed to behave. I don't personally understand how Proverbs 31 gets so blatantly ignored by those who assume themselves to be word-based. Look at the description, the qualitative description of an ideal woman, not even in the New Testament, taken all the way back to the Old Testament, and you see the description that I just gave to you. But as far as particular case studies preserved in the text, which demonstrate the place of women in the Old Testament beyond the example of domestic life, you got Deborah, who was raised up by God to be a prophet and leader of the nation of Israel, directing the armies of God successfully against their enemies. That's seen in Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5. Don't belittle that. Don't look over that. Look, prophet, leader, and directing armies in Judges chapters 4 and 5. There's Miriam, the prophetess and older sister of Moses and Aaron, who watched over a young Moses and participated in leading God's people out of slavery. You can see that in Exodus chapter 2, verses 5 and 10. She's there. Chapter 15 of Exodus, verse 20. In Micah chapter 6, verse 4, God declares, I brought you up out of Egypt, Israel, and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. There's also Esther, who in the classic, almost Hollywood style, leveraged her natural beauty and her boldness and courage that potentially could have cost her her own life to save God's people from genocide, rising to become the queen of Persia. You see that in the book named after her. There's Huldah, the prophet whose counsel was sought regarding the future of Israel in the time of King Josiah's revival. You can see that in 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 15 to 20. And Ruth, who became the exemplar for loyalty and faithfulness to God's people despite her being a foreigner, which earned her a place in Jesus's genealogy and lineage. See the book after her own name. While certainly not normative by any means, given the times and traditions, these examples prove that God himself did not hesitate to empower women for places of prominence, honor, leadership, and even traditional authority in ancient Israel. In the New Testament, the stories and scenarios regarding the place of women are even more pronounced. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus, who at a young age is the first to hear of his coming. And Elizabeth, her cousin, who would be selected to bear John the Baptist. The men's reactions, however, in both stories are secondary to the exemplary qualities of faith demonstrated by the women. Don't take my word for it. Go back and read the accounts in Luke chapter 1. Furthermore, it was clear that Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as Mary Magdalene and other women, were the primary traveling companions to the discipleship band throughout their journeys alongside Jesus. Luke chapter 23, verse 49 says that at the cross, all those who knew him, including the women who had been following him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. They'd been following him through his earthly ministry and they'd gotten all the way there to the cross. While the symbolic 12 disciples remained exclusively men, it was the women who seemed most attentive to Jesus's needs and were said to fund his ministry endeavors along the way as part of the extended band of disciples. 
Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, specifically verse 3, following a list of several women's names, several women contributors, it says these women were helping to support the discipleship band, the band of disciples in Jesus, out of their own means, out of their own resources, out of their own wealth. And that statement about the funding of the work of Jesus' ministry is preceded in Luke 7 with Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus. And she becomes and is named by Jesus as the exemplar of honoring him when the men that were present did not. He took the woman and made her the example of honoring him in the sight of these men, these spiritual leaders who would think nothing of that woman at the time. So important was that moment, it becomes one of the rare scenes recorded in all four Gospels. I told you it's Luke 7, it's also Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John chapter 12. Finally, as we conclude a survey of the Gospels, it's important to mention that it was the Samaritan woman who was entrusted with one of the clearest declarations of Jesus' divinity and purpose. And she carried the message of her encounter of him to both men and women alike. She told them these declarations of who Jesus was. Both men and women received that message. So it says in John chapter 4. Now in the early church following the ministry of Jesus, the contributions of women are even more numerous. For example, there are women mentioned by name who hosted early church communities in their homes. Chloe's mentioned. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. Nympha. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 15, and possibly Epiphia. See Philippians chapter 2. They must have been women of means who held a distinguished role in the churches they hosted, given their personal commendation by Paul in his letters. But women went far beyond just being recognized simply as patrons of churches in the various cities. It was Lydia who was facilitating a prayer ministry in the city of Philippi who first committed her life in faith to Jesus and who led her whole household and others to establish the foundation for the church of Philippi in that city. Let's read it together. Acts chapter 16, verses 13 to 15. It says of Lydia, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate of Philippi to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household, as a result, were baptized, she invited us to come to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And the first conversions in the city occurred right then and there at that prayer meeting led by Lydia and the other women. Women such as the four unmarried daughters of Philip and Anna are said to have spoken prophecy, the foretelling and the foretelling of God. They were speaking it with such regularity they held the distinction of being recognized as prophets. They're spoken of with that title. Anna has that description in Luke chapter 2 verses 36 to 38, and in Acts chapter 21, verse 9, it clearly states, Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. They were four prophets. Phoebe is referred to as a deacon and ministry leader of the church at 
Syncria, see Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Trephina and Trephosa are said to be hard laborers or workers for God, a term exclusively used in the Bible for gospel ministers. See Romans chapter 16, verse 12. Priscilla, alongside her husband Aquila, corrected the doctrine of the future renowned preacher Apollos. You can see that in Acts chapter 18, verse 26. And it is Junia who is given the designation of one who was outstanding among the apostles. Let's read it. Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. They're outstanding among the apostles, including Junia. They have been in prison with him for the work that they've been doing for the gospel. And they've been in Christ even longer than Paul. Interestingly, later manuscripts altered her name to the masculine version Junius, likely in protest to the challenge it presented to the cultural norms through Christian history. But the earliest copies of these letters in the book of Romans preserve her as a female apostle. So that's all we have time to look at in this installment. Yes, we've established a clear principle from the Old Testament to the New Testament regarding the place of men as the authority in the household and in the household of faith in the church. But we have to really consider what that authority looks like and how it is exercised in light of the gospel and in light of Jesus' example. And already we can see from Old Testament to New Testament, simply affirming a complementarian view of marriage and for church life does not mean we should just adopt any human tradition regarding what that looks like in practice for us. In both the home and through the history of God's people in the church, women have demonstrated influence, leadership, tremendous capacity, and invaluable, significant contributions that were not relegated to the margins of church history, but included in the Bible for a purpose. Next week, we're gonna dive deeper into what the scriptures say about the spiritual giftedness of women and their contributions to the church that we've already previewed in this installment to a certain extent. But we'll also look at some contentious passages that seem to limit the contributions of women in certain contexts of the church. How are we to understand those passages, considering the clear biblical evidence of the vast contributions of women? You can find out more by tuning in next week to our third installment of this series, Women in the Church.